Welcome to another episode of A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboy's look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless and set theme every episode. It really is just an attempt to archive some great YouTube content, stories and some great songs for like-minded rock music fans. Choosing from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It won't be a countdown, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to buy music, listen to an old favourite album, support a musician and check out some of this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people these days do like to share their opinions, please let me know if you think that I have missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I won't ever check this email address at gofuckyourself.cockgoblin.com. That's cock spelt with a K. And I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me on Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast, or via the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. The website also has Spotify playlists of all of the songs used in each episode, past episodes, and some other golden magic. I've also put some small playlists of the great, lesser-known artists that I feature at the end of each episode on the Victims tab of the website. Please subscribe to the podcast, share, rate, and review the podcast if you're digging it. That is super helpful and appreciated. Thanks again, and here goes. Thanks again for listening, and thanks this week to Luke O'Connor, Dave Brick, Steve Shank, and Mark Eberlein. I've been trying to avoid the obvious topics, best drum feel, best guitar solo, etc. But wanted to do this one is it's a bit rarer for a song to start on the bass. And what I class as a great bass intro really just translates into a great song that happens to start with the bass bit. And as a bass player and a guitarist, I'll try and keep my bassism to a minimum. I'm going to be pretty loose on what qualifies as a bass intro. Some start with the whole band but have a cool bass line cooking in there. And some, like this first one, which we did play back in episode 10's All About The Ladies, is a basic, straight and great bass line.
There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs why it annoys me so much so shit just because you can doesn't mean you have to <laughs> sorry I'll try and get my shit together we also had these two in episode 8 and 9's name changes you play an instrument? yeah can't believe I've never told you I play bass really? oh yeah <laughs> I slapped the bass big time what do you what is that? you sound like a leprechaun no what that's that? a reggae guy I just did reggae. It doesn't sound... It doesn't sound reggae? No. Slap the bass. No. Slip the bass, big time. Mm. Slap the bass. That sounded like Borat. Yeah. Slap the bass, big time. That's better. And of course this one, which is one of my favourite songs ever. Episode six's F-Bombs had these two great bass intro tunes. second internet dig on Sober by Tool, I actually found an early version of a song called Burn About Out by Maynard's pre-Tool band called The Children of the Anacrostic Dynasty, which is definitely an early version of what would later become the bass power corded intro of their masterpiece Sober, and here it is. obviously have these two crackers as well.
was 46 and 2 and Schism by Tool. Just some music nerdery on Schism. The time meter changes 47 times in the song. A little bit ago we mentioned Under Pressure. Here's one of my favourite and super underrated bass players of all time, John Deacon from Queen. You know, to fight the dust is a, a cowboy phrase. And that's all I had at first, just the, the line. And um, when we went in the studio, I had well, actually had a, a set of lyrics that nobody's ever seen. I never showed them to anybody. I was sort of so embarrassed about them in the end. They were all about uh, cowboys. And like, there's a little story. And like, at the end of each verse, another one bit the dust. But when we recorded it in, in Munich, uh, we did the backing track. And it sort of came out, it was a bit heavier, really. Whereas the cowboy thing was like a little bit more lighthearted and humorous. So I decided to change the lyrics. Yeah, we'd already had one number one from, the, from that album, uh, um, The Game. And uh, then we had another hit with Play The Game. We had Crazy Little Thing, we had Play The Game, and then we had another remember Michael Jackson saying that you, should, you guys are mad if you don't release another one by Stas. I remember saying that will never be a hit. particular DJ in New York, wasn't it? And, and they put out a special, their own edit of it, I believe, on, on their radio station, and it just caught fire like a, like a brush fire across the States. And, and obviously amongst the black community rather than the white community, which was a rarity. And I believe, I mean, it's kind of hearsay from my point of view, but apparently most of those um, black DJs who were playing it thought that we were a black group, thought that Freddie was black in the early days, and then it was kind of too late. <laughs> We were doing a run at Madison Square Garden at the time, and I remember being in the car in New York, and and some of the um, uh, some young black guys there, and they were going, "You guys are bad." And I thought, oh, meaning that we were like really terrible. Not, you know, <laughs> you're bad. And, and since I got you here, I asked you this off record once, and then. There was another. There was two other songs I used that, that I thought that bass line uh, sounded familiar. Here's another one, and this was by the group Queen, rock band. Don't, don't listen to that. Now play chic, play chic. Come on, come on, get chic, so you know back in the day okay so now in the live show we used to play both and the crowd would bug out you would play queen version oh yeah because everybody knew uh vaughn mason had bounce rock roll skate the the uh queen had this um blondie had rapture yeah and of course we know the big one rapper's delight this one right here now listen to the bass line in this Citizens, we we going through some history. We got now Rogers here. We got to do this. Hold up. But um, that's the first one of the first rap songs I ever learned as a kid too. Rappers. And delight. I bet you know the whole thing, right? Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> Listen to that bass line. Okay, so okay, so let me ask you this question. You guys were the originators. There you go. <laughs> I came right back. I came right back. <laughs> Who played this first? 
What do you mean who played this part? Who played this part? Look at the copyright. The daddy. That was a stunt. He just started on a stunt. That was Niall Rogers talking about Sheik's good times and how many times the great bass line has been sampled. there was concerned mothers that thought secret messages were hidden in songs that were played backwards. And here's another one, Bites the Dust, played backwards. They claim that this says it's fun to smoke marijuana. John Deacon also played guitar, piano and keyboards on this song that was used in England to train medical professionals to provide the correct amount of chest compressions per minute while performing CPR on patients. Next up, we have a triple banger from one great album. Here's a medley of awesomeness from Timmy C, Rage Against the Machine. Bullet in the head. Settle for nothing. Slap the bass. 
Here's a great story about Timmy C at the 2000 MTV Music Awards. Awards are known for their surprises, and Thursday's show is no exception. Rage Against the Machine bassist Tim Comerford was arrested after he disrupted the show by climbing part of the set. And we got a, a madman. I wanted to bring the whole thing down, but they didn't move. In my mind, I visualized the whole structure on the ground, you know, and the next time they came out from commercial break. I wanted people to see destruction. This guy is rock and roll. He should be getting the award. It was just one of those things where, like, once I was up there, it's like, wow, now what are you going to do? I thought Eminem was chanting my name, but I was wrong. He was chanting to jump. <laughs> I saw Dr. Dre, you know, I thought that was weird. He was kind of scratching his head, you know, and I was like, he's not down. They were embarrassed and humiliated and frustrated uh, because they could not get the cat out of the tree. Charles Manson's little brother up there. To be honest with you, I thought it was a, a beautifully honest act of frustration. I'm a huge Rage fan, and I guess that is Rage Against the Machine. And Kid Rock had a couple of good ideas as to how to get him down. I just want to know, is it for world peace? Is it for world poverty? What are we fighting for? My reasons were my personal reasons, totally personal politics. Tim C. spent one night in jail, pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct, and was released on time served. Limp Biscuit were on stage accepting an award for best rock video for their song Break Stuff, which had just won over Rage Against the Machine's Sleep Now in the Fire. Timmy Comerford later described Limp Biscuit as one of the dumbest bands in musical history. Speaking of Limp Biscuit, I'm adding this song in here 100% for the great man Owen Downey. A song I love until the first record scratch noise comes in, which comes in at about 11 seconds, and then I'm done. I probably would dig a scratchless version of this song. Rearranged by Limp Biscuit. Just think about it. Here's my last word on and slept to beers. It's just one of those days where you don't want to wake up. Everything is fucked. Everybody sucks. You don't really know why, but you want to justify ripping someone's head off. No human contact. And if you interact, your life is on contract. Your best bet is to stay away, motherfucker. It's just one of those days. It's all about the he says, she says bullshit. first fell in love with this song as a kid, seeing it on the great British comedy, The Young Ones, and Cock-a-Doodle-Doo, here's the band talking about their signature tune. You've adopted the Ace of Spades as your motif. Why the Ace of Spades? Because it's bad luck. Ace of Spades is bad luck, isn't it? See? So we figured if, uh, if we use bad luck as our theme, then it can't get any worse. You know? In the beginning, because it was getting worse, so I figured we'll go to the bottom, you know? 
use all the bad luck signs, born to lose, live to win, right? And I'm a pessimist as well. I, I would rather be a pessimist than anything, you know, if... Uh, if you're not disappointed. If, uh, <laughs> if you're a pessimist and so things don't work out and you've got nothing to be disappointed about, so... Uh, you always say what going to So most of the time I'm uh, quite happy. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. things always go better than what I think they're going to do. And this picture on the front of the Ace of Spades album, that is the, uh, the bad boy cowboy bandit image. You look more like a Texas rock band than a UK rock band. Yeah, well, everybody's brought up on John Wayne movies, aren't they, you know? Well, that was actually was, uh, this was actually photographed in a sandstone quarry in Barnet, <laughs> just outside London, believe it or not, and that sky is real. <laughs> what do you think of critics who say that uh, Motorhead are three stupid people playing loud rock? I think critics are stupid people. I ain't playing no music for no critics. Yeah, yeah. I'm playing for the audience. I ain't playing for no critics. They can go and um, do things I can't say on TV to themselves with a, with a large meat hook. Oh, Vip, here's your chance. Right, now see the big hand there. <laughs> right, that's on the two, right? Yeah. Now the little hand is on that one there, just before the 12. Now what's that one? 11. Perfectly excellent. So what's the time? Uh, half past five. <laughs> Please, we've got exactly two minutes to get to the station. Oh, cock-a-doodle-doo, Neil. <laughs> what are you talking about? We've been picked, right, to go on University Challenge tonight. To the station! Music! Lemmy scientifically explaining the difference between himself and other bass players. The basic difference is that most bass players sound like this. Whereas I... sound quite different. You know, Spike was one of our, as a band, was one of our best friends and yeah. like beyond inner circle. I remember like watching, we, we all watched videotapes of, uh, VHS videotapes of uh, Streets of San Francisco and other shows and we were like, okay, that, they were like, we were like, that would be awesome if we could actually pull off our own version of that. We kind of set out to do one thing and we captured a bunch of it, but we actually ended up making something completely different. We literally, we bought a car that was about to die and we um, had some kind of like loose shooting purpose, but not, you know, it's not like we had fire department or any of the stuff that we should have had like with the car. And we just drove the car ourselves. We, we 
almost killed the car a couple of times, but we definitely didn't come close to killing ourselves. That was Mike D from the Beastie Boys talking about the clip for their bass intro gold, Sabotage. Motown, we have, and we always have had, the Motown family. We were not only stable mates at a record company, we were family. We had a policy at Motown whereas you never ever had a lock on an artist. All the producers and the writers could go to an artist with a song and say, hey, do you like this song? And if the artist said yes, the producer or the writer was able to record that song on that artist. That's why the composition was so stiff and we had so many hits because Barry has this saying that he did. He says, competition breeds success. And even though we were competing against each other, it would be nothing for us to go into the studio and help one of our competitors with a song that they were working on with an artist that we were working on. Any of us, we all did that for each other. I'll use my girl for an example. Were it not for The Temptations, I never would have written My Girl. When they came to Motown and we signed them up, Barry said, hey man, I want you to get some hits on them. I said, okay, so I started to work with them. I had a nickname for them. I used to call them the Five Deacons because they had a very gospel-y sound. <laughs> I could take them in a little room and just, hey man, you guys sing ooh for me. And they say, ooh, and shake the room. So I wrote My Girl for David Russell's voice, for The Temptations, for them to sing. And The Temptations were so creative in making up the background vocals, hey, 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 and all that, whoa, whoa, and all the stuff that they're singing on My Girl, they made that up themselves. It turned out to be an incredible record, but it, if it wasn't for The Temptations, I probably never would have even written My Girl. So no, I don't wish I would have kept it for myself because they're the ones who brought it out of me. <laughs> they're the ones who brought it on. And, and plus, I always was so happy whenever I got a hit record on one of the artists because they were my brothers and sisters. And if I could do something to enhance their career and make things better for them, that made me happy. That was a guy that I missed in episode eight and nine's name changes, Smokey Robinson, real name William Robinson. Another simple and great baseline, 12 notes of magic, My Girl, The Temptations. I've got sunshine on a cloud. 
Every time the Beatles release an LP or a single, the pop music business usually changes direction. The changes instigated by their latest contribution, Abbey Road, will most certainly be noticed. In this show, John exclusively discusses the new Beatles collection, track by track. Well, John, the, the first track on the LP is the Come Together song, which is yeah. your vocal, and uh, is it in fact your, you wrote the song as well? Yes, yes. I've, I've heard whispers that it's the, it will be the next American single. No, if, uh, if anything, it might be the B-side. I think we probably put something out as a single out there. I think that's about the best track on the album, actually, George's track. And they, they had it, you know how they always get our records before they're out over there somehow. We've got a spy in England who sends them the oh, tapes. Right. <laughs> and uh, they were playing something so so much, they had an advance thing of it, the red hot for it over there. So we'll probably release it over there as a single. I don't know what will happen here. Now, the Come Together side is, um, is a fairly different song as far as the group's concerned. Yeah, yeah. The Come Together track? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how that happened, you know. I mean, I think it's pretty funky, you know. I'm biased because it's my song. I dig it, you know. And uh, it just I, it just happened well, you know. It's a nice, funky sound on it. Uh, what, what was the, the effect right at the beginning that we're going to hear in a minute, right at the beginning, the sort of uh, it's, whistling tone? Oh, it's me going... On tape, I go. All oh, right, it's sort of compressed then, isn't it? No, it's not compressed. It's just I was sort of going through my hands like that. Great. Okay. Well, we'll we'll hear it right now. Come together. talking about his groove that accompanies Paul's famous bass line and why his style is a little bit unique. Oh, sorry, I keep going to hit that now. It's been so long. Uh, the interesting thing with this pattern is that it's actually the bass that opens that song. Yeah. And, you know, John's words... You know, that was that's the intro. There's no like real verse or anything. Yeah. And so we're sitting around, and it was just like tr- playing with what he was saying mm. and with what the the bass line was doing, mm. and you know, trying to find sort of an interesting piece. Because besides this part that comes in several times, the rest of it is just like it's just like pause. You know what I mean? It's real easy. Yeah. But why we got to this is because you see, I'm left-handed. And I'm playing a right-handed kit. If there's any drummers in here, see, they usually go, you know, they go round the drum this way. Well, I can't do that. See, I can't go. I have to get this hand down. So that's why everyone thought, wow, he's a genius, but all we're doing is trying to play backwards. <laughs> you know, so he goes, uh, So it comes around this way, and all my fills, mm. which, you know, I have, you know, they don't come in fast. There's always a break because I have to get this hand <laughs> ready. So it's like... 
And get back, you know what I'm saying? So it's like one of those mad accidents, you can't learn it. So I was left-handed, my grandmother didn't like that, she made me go right-handed. And so I have a right-handed kit, but actually I'm a left-handed player. I covered the Ringo left-handed story in bonus episode four a few weeks ago. Check it out for a deep dig on a bunch of great Ringo drum-related greatness. There's a handful of infamous violent acts, weirdly enough, are all tied into bass intro songs. And here's a little side rabbit hole and then some moose talk. Me it was supposed to be a done deal. 16-year-old Brian Bassett, the defendant on the left, would be spending the rest of his life in prison. But 23 years later, Bassett, now 40, returned to the same courthouse to learn his fate once again. In 1995, Bassett and his 17-year-old friend Nick McDonald went to Bassett's McCleary home, shot and killed his mother Wendy and father Michael. Bassett also drowned his five-year-old brother Austin. The next year, he got a life sentence without a chance for parole. But last fall, the state Supreme Court ruled life sentences are cruel for 16 or 17-year-olds and therefore unconstitutional. So offenders like Bassett need to be resentenced. It's as if the gas pedal is coming online before the brakes do. A psychologist testified on Bassett's behalf, saying a 16-year-old's brain isn't fully developed and they should not be punished for their actions for the rest of their lives. While in custody, Bassett has earned his high school degree and even got married. His wife testified if released, Bassett would be a good mentor for troubled children. For the first time in more than 20 years, Bassett's older sister, Stephanie, was in the same room with her brother, pleading with the judge to keep him locked up. I can't imagine ever feeling safe if he's out. And I find that appalling that you think you can come out of prison after you've destroyed so much. She's always feared Bassett would have killed her had she not been at a softball tournament at the time of the murders. Today, she fears something she never thought possible in 1996. And from that time, I've gone on to be married and have children and have create a really good life. That's right. Because I knew he was gone forever. That was a brutal story about my next choice for a great bass intro song, which is Israel's Son by Silverchair. Those cock goblins tried to use Israel's son in their court case, stating that the line, hate is what I feel for you, and I want you to know that I want you dead, influenced them to go and kill their family. I have similar thoughts most days as I drive in Melbourne peak hour traffic, but I've yet to murder anyone in my family or anyone else's family, including pets. The band were only 16 at the time, and I imagine that the song being tied up in all that mess would have been a huge issue to deal with. When I first heard Israel's son, I actually thought it sounded a little bit like this. Just a little bit.
Next up is another great 60s song with a cool bass line in the intro, but the song has a dark history. This song is Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones. And it was actually the song that the band were playing at Altamont Speedway in Northern California on December 6th, 1969. During the performance of the song, an 18-year-old fan, Meredith Hunter, was stabbed to death by a Hells Angels biker named Alan Passaro after Meredith pulled a gun on him. The Hells Angels were enlisted to provide security for about $500 worth of beer, which is about $3,500 US in today's money. The festival was meant to match the peace and love of the Woodstock concert held about three months earlier, but it kind of symbolically ended the peace and love era of the 60s, with four deaths on the day. Rolling Stone magazine called it Rock and Roll's all-time worst day, a day where everything went perfectly wrong. Check out the film called Gimme Shelter for the full story. Head over to our website, which is www.arockandrollrabbithole.com and check out the tab called Golden Magic because I've put up a film there of Charlie and Mick watching the stabbing on film for the first time. Brutal stuff. Under my thumb, The Rolling Stones. starts with a moose. This is an example of a moose. And here's another moose. And one more little moosey. That last moose was attached to a song that Skid Row were playing in 1989 while opening for Aerosmith. When singer Sebastian Bach threw a bottle which had earlier hit him in the head and split his head open into the first few rows and then jumped into the crowd boots first. The bottle he threw hit a 17 year old girl whose nose and skull were broken. Check out the Golden Magic tab on the website for the incident and watch the band as they merrily keep playing the song. Peace of Me by Skid Row. Yeah. 
just a side rabbit hole on a few more great bass songs that have a moose attached to the front. The first one is a pop soul masterpiece that features Nathan East on bass and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers keys man, Ben Montench. Such a cool bass line. I always thought that the line, clean the floor, was a funny one to add in the context of her leaving. A song that made it to number 17 in the UK, number five in the US, and surprisingly was their biggest hit out here in Australia, hitting the number one spot for two weeks in 1985. A great moose and a great bass line for Would I Lie To You by Eurythmics. example of a 70s moose, Sure Know Something by Kiss. Drinking affects your decision making. You may be right. I can't decide. It's <laughs> <coughs> just a little humor. <coughs> Where's the rest of this moose? Arthur, I think it's time we got to know one another. I do too. That's why I had you come over today. <laughs> this is a tough room. I don't have to tell you that. You must have hated this moose. Why don't you forget the moose for a moment? So that's the end of this mini bass intro violence and moose episode within an episode for now. A special thanks goes out to Ben Cripps for helping me out with some moose chat. Why don't you forget the moose? I was 
My favourite Kiss album, and the only album I really know back to front, is probably their most hated album, Unmasked. And it has a really unusual but cool Ace Frehley song. I always thought that Ace was by far the best singer, and his three songs on Kiss Unmasked are all cool as fuck in my opinion. Two Sides of the Coin, Talk To Me, and the bass intro, Torpedo Girl. April 21st, it's Robert Smith at The Cure's birthday. And all this week, we're sharing that celebration with you by playing some of The Cure's biggest hits. And today, I wanted to ask Robert about a song that also had a great video that accompanied it, Love Cats. One of the things about making the video for that was that um, Tim was allergic, really violently allergic to cats, which made it just really good fun for me because up until then, he'd been torturing us. So it was nice for me to be able to walk up to him with kittens under my arm and say, yeah, feeling right, Tim. Get away from me. And that didn't make you want to have pets yourself? Um, no, I've, I've, both sides of, um, of our family have got pets and lots and lots of children. So I'm going to throw them into the sink. <laughs> I shouldn't have said about that, should I? Um, no, it's, honestly, the reason I don't have any responsibilities is because I'm, I like to be irresponsible as I grow older. I don't really want to, I want much better just to get up and go and do things. So it's very selfish. I live, lead a very selfish life in some respects, but in other respects not. But, um, I just like the freedom of not having responsibility to others. That was The Cure's Robert Smith talking about Tim Pope, the video director's allergy to cats during the filming of a song that Robert described himself as far from my favourite song, composed while drunk, filmed while drunk, promotion made drunk. It was a joke. But I've always loved the song and it has a great upright bassline intro. The Cure, Love Cats. Pretty. 
Another Cure song, probably my favourite of theirs, that also has a great bassline intro, is Close To Me. Here's Robert Smith again talking about my favourite segment of the population, Critics. In the 80s and towards the end of the 80s and your peak, I, I sort of try and put myself in that position if you have peak. We're still climbing the peak. No, you're still, no, you're still climbing that up. But, like playing yeah, top. I've got to peak up now, because it's a misconception yeah. in this country. Commercially, we didn't actually peak in the 80s. It's Critically, like in, more, would you say, that? There's never been any critical acclaim in the UK, full stop. It doesn't make any difference oh, what critics mean. If we, we, no, it's, it's totally untrue. When we played concerts in, like, um, in 96, and in fact in 2000, above our tour, we played to more people globally than we did at any other time in our careers. And so the sense that like, critics determine like, the weather, the cure, single soon, has been kind of proved to be false so many times. Close to me has one of the best opening lines about anxiety ever. Check out the hand claps and weird breathing that hold the rhythm together too. Close to me by The Cure. next song we covered back in episode 13 and 14's Dead by 40, but it's such an epic bass line I need to pop it in here again. It was probably one of the first bass lines I learned, along with Come Together, that wasn't a root note follow the guitar player type line. Metallica, For Whom the Bell Tolls.
After Cliff Burton tragically died in 1986, Metallica auditioned a bunch of replacements, and one of them was Les Claypool from Primus. Once again, check out episode 13 and 14 for the full story behind Cliff Burton's death. He asked Les about auditioning for Metallica. What was that like? It was loud. It was a loud experience. Uh, well, Kirk's an old high school buddy of mine, and um, when Cliff died, I was one of the guys who got the phone call. Um, I wasn't a big metal guy, um, but I got, he, he had given me Ride the Lightning um, you know, a year or two before that, and I would listen to that in the morning before I'd go to, go to work as I'm taking a shower, it kind of woke me up. Yeah. But, um, and, I didn't know much about the scene. I went and, you know, I didn't even realize how big they were, to tell you the truth. I was like, oh, oh I'll just, you know, maybe I can quit my carpentry job if I get this gig, you know? So um, I went and auditioned, and it was a little, you know, it was. I, I realized how big they were when I went to the place, and they go, okay, so, uh, you know, thanks for coming. I, you know, I'm going to take you in to see the guys, and don't be nervous. And I was like, oh, well, you know. And then I realized, well, these guys, they must be kind of big. We tried out quite a few people. Uh, Les Claypool from Primus was actually one of them. Lars was like, you're not used to playing this kind of music, are you? And I was like, no, hey, you know, you guys want to jam on some Isley Brothers tunes? You know, and uh, nobody, nobody laughed at my joke. He was too good. He was like, okay, you get your own thing, you know. I wasn't the right guy. I looked like a total freak, you know. They, I remember because uh, James said on VH1, well, you know, Les was too good. And that's total bullshit. <laughs> Being nice, you thought I was a weirdo. They never called me. I weeped, weeped, weeped like a like a like a little girl. Les Claypool is one of the most original bass players ever. Primus, Jerry was a race car driver. How do you feel about hysteria now? That's going back a while. Back to I think that's another one that's still kind of, you know, it's pretty much in every set we still do. And Chris uh, loves playing that one. <laughs> I hate playing it. Huh? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, I think like Plug-In Baby, it's, it's one of that. I think it went out of the set for a little bit, um, maybe around the time of the resistance. Um, and, you know, I think there's been certain songs we've done that with where we've given them a little rest for a while and bring them back into the set and they almost kind of feel new again. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been in the set for, for quite a while now. You know, it's uh, you know it's quite early in the set. I think it's just one of those songs that kind of gets people up straight away. You know? mm. That was Muse talking about their monster bass intro, Hysteria.
on the same album, Absolution, which is Muse's third record, it also has the great bass intro nugget, Time Is Running Out. It could be a synth, but live it's played on a bass. A song which bass player Chris Walstenholm stated was highly influenced by this famous bass intro track. up is a great single note bass intro that I missed in episode one's building intros. The great Mark Evans stays on a glorious B note for about 95 seconds as the band builds around him. So much restraint and cool. Here's Mark talking to my buddy Dean Del Rey. Who would make the set list back then, you know, and, and on the ACDC tours? Was, was it Bond? Was it Malcolm? Who would make the set list? Oh, that's, that's, that's another interesting point about that band. Um, like I said, we did, we never rehearsed or did any demos. We never had a set list either. Really? There's no set list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I'd never seen a set. I I I'd, I'd never even seen a set list till I was outside of ACDC. Wow. Because so we we we'd go on and the whole thing we we'd start um, once we had recorded TNT. What we used to do, we'd always start off with Livewire. Right, because um, and it almost negate the uh, need to have a sound check. It just starts off with the bass and the hi hats, and then Malcolm's guitar starts looking in, and it builds up. So even it comes in at different times. So we'd start off with that song, uh, and the, the, what we'd do uh, we'd start off with live wire, and we'd finish with baby, please don't go, uh, and then once let there be rock was recorded, the, the finishing song would be Let There Be Rock. Uh, but, um, yeah, no set list, man. Well, thanks for doing the show, and uh, it was fantastic to talk to you. I want to thank my buddy Mark Brunot, who set this up, man. He is the he is an Australian super fan of my podcast and a great friend, and he set it up, and, and I'm oh, really... Fantastic. I'm really hoping to meet you and Angry in person once this COVID's gone and we'll hang out and uh, shoot the shit. We, we, we may uh, have a couple of quiet, refreshing drinks at the whiskey. What, what, what do you think? We'll do that, and I'll come down to sound check and just hear you run uh, uh, one minute of that live wire, man. Just doon, 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 doon. That's my that, yeah. that song makes my fucking... 
hair stand up, man. It's just one of my favorite. One of my favorites too. One oh, of my favorites. Oh, dude, man! It. I mean, it is fire. <laughs> it is fire, dude. Oh man, if you, if you, yeah, I've got to think. If you if you can't play bass when you you got Phil Rudd and, uh, on drums and Malcolm Young on the rhythm guitar, if you can't play bass that. Get a new career path because you're <laughs> shot, man. Doubling down here on my simple versus complex, cause we can versus must we, here's a choir destroying a different ACDC song. These wankers are crazy DC if they think this sounds good. A lesser-known Aussie rock band next with two great naughty boy guitarists, Sean O and Tommy, that I used to teach. These guys have a stellar bass intro tune, and here's Bones by Dead City Ruins.
another Aussie tune here with a cool bass intro, Jet with Are You Gonna Be My Girl. Just a side rabbit hole on Are You Gonna Be My Girl, here's a quick listen to Iggy Pop's Lust For Life. And the Supremes, You Can't Hurry Love. Here's another similar vibed bass intro that I love, Town Like Malice by The Jam. from the jam talking about his inspiration for putting the band together. I made up the, um, the rhythm tape in a shed at the bottom of the garden. My, my, uh, my wife then was a potter and she, she had a, a pottery studio at the bottom of the garden. I had a little music studio next to it and she had a big um, metal mixing bowl for mixing up clay. And so um, I went, oh, I know how to make the rhythm for this. And I had a Revox A77. I only had two track machines at the time at home. And so, you know, I got a microphone out and put it by the mixing bowl and threw a handful of coins in. I went, right, that's one noise. And then tore some paper up. Right, there's another one. And then searched around for the sound of a cash register or something. I thought, oh, it's in 7-8. Okay, so I cut up seven pieces of tape of the sound effects exactly the same length. And... and um, spliced them together and you know stuck it in the revox going around a mic stand to hold it like that and press the button and that and that was it helped in quite a big way by money being the single and money was really the obvious choice money is a hit. 
while we were on tour, the record was going up the Billboard chart like that. And it eventually it hit number one. We were touring, we went and toured, you know, and there was a big, there was a big, big buzz going on. Our line of progress in America, we were moving up and we were selling out quite good, large places, you know, selling a lot of tickets. The workload shot up, the tours shot up. I went on to write Wish You Were Here, so, you know, come in here, dear boy, have a cigar. You're gonna go far, it was all that. By the way, which one's pink? That was Roger Waters and David Gilmore talking about the coin sounds and timing of Pink Floyd's great bass intro, Money. There's this monstrosity. Certainly not my favourite Red Hot Chili Peppers song, but I've always loved the crazy bass intro of Around the World.
Here's Mike Patton reading some lyrics. Back and forth, I sway with the wind. Resolution slips away again. Right through my fingers and back into my heart. Where it's out of reach, it's in the dark. Sometimes I think I'm blind, or maybe just paralyzed. Because the plot thickens every day, and the pieces of my puzzle keep crumbling away. But I know, there's a picture beneath. Indecision clouds my vision. No one listens. Because I'm somewhere in That was a bit of the 1988 demo for Faith No More's bass intro cracker, Falling to Pieces. Alice in Chains is a song written as a tribute by Jerry Cantrell after the death of his friend and mother love bone singer Andrew Wood, who we covered in episode 13's Dead by 40. The song has a great bass intro, and here's Jerry Cantrell talking about the song. A really significant thing for all of us was, you know, kind of a heavier foreshadowing of some things that would directly affect us and, and, and our friends is, is the, you know, the death of Andy Wood. And that song was me thinking about him like we all did, you know, and trying to put, put that down and, and just kind of write a little ode for him, you know, and because he wasn't there and everything was taking off. It was, it was a nice thing to be able to use that song, you know. It was very, uh, very poignant, I thought, because we kind of carried him with us.
Next up, we have another great song with a great bass intro from 1975. This was this band's second number one US single. The bass line was thought up by lead guitar player Don Felder of the Eagles. One of these nights by the Eagles. This next one has a great bass intro and is actually played on a 12-string bass. The line, Seemed a Harmless Little Fuck, could have featured in Episode 6 F-Bomb Special, but I went with... The song is actually about a kid called Jeremy Dell, not Jeremy, spoken class today. Jeremy by Pearl Jam. up is a great brooding bass line by John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin, Dazed and Confused. Lots of people talking, few of them know 
Yeah, no, Led Zeppelin recorded it, and, and mm -hmm. what did you think when you saw the first... Uh, wait, first of all, I wasn't paying attention to rock and roll at that time, and I had no idea, okay, they stole it, what the heck. I had no idea the song was as successful as it was. A lot of lawyers told me it was too late to do anything. Because of Procol Harum, the, the, the lawsuit for white shaded pale, which was from back in the same kind of days, and some lawyer from California said, "It's a precedent, so let's see if we can do something." So it was good, and they, they you know, they've, they've been good. The way I look at it is that Jimmy Page took that song and he made it into something really cool. Um, you know, my version was a much smaller, um, different thing. I mean, I think he should, I wish he hadn't changed the words, um, because I think the words were a little hipper than, than his words. That was Jake Holmes talking about his song also called Dazed and Confused. And here's Jake's recording. If you think of a song as a bit like the human body, you could say that it's the bass line which often forms the backbone, the central theme which all other harmonies hang off. And there's one solo that stands out for many as the mother of all bass lines. Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side is a bit edgy. It's a little bit dark and is as well known today as it was at the time of its release back in 1972, if not even more so. It's also unmistakably associated with New York. So why, you may ask, have I come to leafy Sussex? Well, not far from here lives the man who made that song instantly recognisable with his unforgettable bass line. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. In the early 1970s, Herbie Flowers was a bass for hire. He made his living as a jobbing session musician. So, Herbie, tell us, what was life like for a session musician back then? Busy because there was a, an explosion in the amount of work available for musicians. And you only need to play on a couple that become hits and you become flavour of the month. And, and Lou Reed, how did you end up working for him? David Bowie phoned me up, because I've done a lot of work for him on things like Space Oddity. And Lou Reed, I think, had left Velvet Underground and David had said, why don't you come to London to do some recording? And I was booked to be at Trident Studios at 10 o'clock that Monday morning. And there was Lou in the control box. And I'd taken my double bass because I'm an old double bass player and I would always take that because I prefer playing it to the electric thing. I thought, can I do it on this? Because the song itself is dark. It, it seemed to work doing... Being an old jazzer, I thought, oh, can I try something? Yeah, of course you can. And I overdubbed the bass guitar a tenth, that's ten notes above what the double bass was doing. And it, it's quite a distinctive sound. Sounds stupid, doesn't it? 
But when you combine that with the other bass, it takes on another character. That's what you created? Well, yeah, but that's what old jazzers do. You, you put bits in. In those days, the recording rate for a three-hour session was £12. But if you overdubbed, that means layered another instrument on top, you got double the money. Not that I did it for that reason, oh. but... Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. And Lou said, that's gorgeous because he said it actually suited what the song was about, which was luck, because I had no idea what the song was about. And, and the session, that particular session, how long did it take? Well, that, 20 minutes. So did you expect the song to be a hit then? I think what appealed to people, why they actually liked it, is that it was played just with three or four players, like in a room, and it was very accessible. So here's the 1972 Mick Ronson, David Bowie produced, upright-based, ascending and descending moose to magic of Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side She was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 Watching an old uh, video of Nirvana where the big guy threw his guitar up and whacked his head. How was the 92 VMA MTV <laughs> Music Awards? Or bass player, what he, he sometimes at the end of a show, we're just trashing shit and fucking everything. And drums are breaking, and Chris would do this thing. He's six foot seven and a half. I take the bass and he'd throw it 20 feet up in the air and catch it. And so at this Video Music Awards thing, throws it up in the air. Blinded by the light, <laughs> smacked down on the head, <laughs> winds up on the floor, and I didn't realize what happened. And afterwards, everyone's coming up to me, where's Chris? Where's Chris? Where's Chris? I'm like, I don't know, what's wrong? Dude, he knocked himself out with the bass. He knocked himself out with the bass. So we're all running around looking for him and behind this super arena dome thing, and I'm, 
I can picture him like in the fetal position in a broom closet with a huge lump on his head, like, Aah. and I run into this one room and I open the door and there's Chris with this huge lump on his head drinking champagne with Brian May from Queen, just like. You know, when Cobain looks over it and says, dude, that's fucked up. You, uh, you it's the real really deal. It's the real deal. Loungeact by Nirvana. Many people talk about Adam Clayton from U2's Baselines, but I think he's great. I can hear his influence on a heap of bands, especially Coldplay and The Killers, and there's also a bunch of songs and bands which I wish I could hear his influence on. Check this one out, New Year's Day by U2. the last of the bass intro songs before I get to my favourite, but I want to include a funny, crazy or interesting story in each episode about one of the songs or artists, and today's story is about... The Pearl Jam song, Jeremy, might bring back memories for some, but for one mother, it's like reliving a nightmare. For the first time, she's talking about the song and, and its connection to her son's death. The tragedy that sparked a song and a controversial music video nearly 30 years ago. Jeremy by Pearl Jam. That day that he died did not define his life. Wanda is Jeremy's mother. He was a son 
a brother, a nephew, a cousin, a grandson. He was a friend. He was talented. On January 8, 1991, her son walked into his English classroom at Richardson High School and shot himself in front of his peers. In an instant, everything changed. I was at my office work. And what was your immediate reaction? I didn't believe it. I was in shock, not my son. I was going to pick him up that afternoon at school. Even now, his mother is not sure as to the why. How did you get through the fact that it happened in front of children? I didn't think about it. I mean, you literally go into a fog. That's me, always right next to my friend Eric. Brittany King was Jeremy's classmate. This was a big wake-up call, like, you know what? Life is not all hunky-dory all the time. Real things, tragedies happen. She was 16 and he was almost 16 in January of 1991. It made me grow up pretty quick overnight, literally overnight. Brittany remembers it like it was yesterday. Shock and fear um, went into my mind. Uh, all the students we ran to the back of the room and kind of huddled together. Then, Brittany made a split-second decision that will forever haunt her. Should I look? I remember thinking that, should I look? And I did. I looked. I just, out of, just, I don't know why. I don't know why I looked, but I did. And um, I'll never forget. I will never forget it. A newspaper clipping about the shooting at Richardson High caught the attention of Pearl Jam, and the rest is history. I was angry at them for writing that song. I thought, you don't know, you weren't there. That story's not accurate. Even though it seems illogical that it would be quicker for me to record this track than it would be to actually just do his beat, he has decided that yet again this week there'll be no So my choice for my favourite bass intro song is It's So Easy by Guns N' Roses off Appetite for Destruction, which is still the highest selling debut album ever. This is one of the many songs off Appetite for Destruction that really caved my head in when I first heard it as a kid. The two octave jump in the vocals, the swearing, the attitude, and definitely the bass intro and the accompanying drums. The original album cover was a painting by Robert Williams titled Appetite for Destruction, which he painted in 1978. The artwork shows a female who is about to be or just been sexually assaulted by a robot and another knife-toothed monster hovering over a fence to seek out some revenge on the robot. Google it if you've never seen it. It's a pretty cool painting. Anyway, the cover was banned in many places and later pressings had a Celtic cross design with the five band members' skulls on it and the Robert Williams image was moved to the inner sleeve. Anyway, here's Axel talking about his first idea for the cover art for Appetite for Destruction. David Geffen gave me a lecture about the wrong cover and that's why I'm not selling right. records and da 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 but all that was kind of planned to, to sell records and you know it's like because I you know the first cover gets banned we go with the second you know and that was already I still have the first cover too <laughs> yeah yeah I, but the original cover which we never made was going to be the the Challenger exploding wow really I figured it's on the cover of time. We should be allowed to use it too, and it wasn't meant derogatory, but I, I just wanted our record to be, because that just that photograph just blew my mind. So, But they went, oh, this is in bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I was like, okay, well, what about this one? And I just kind of threw this postcard out and walked away. <laughs> Here's Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, the primary songwriter of It's So Easy, spreading some love to Prince. Some of these records were soundtracks to my life. You know, we all had that record, um, or records. 1999 was a changing time for me, and that record came out and I discovered this Prince guy, you know, and like he plays everything on this, he does everything, he recorded it, he wrote all these songs, and the record was so all over the place, but it was a journey. And um, I went back and got controversy, and I got, got everything, I like, found singles and Bambi and all this stuff, and the first two records, and my God, this guy's amazing. I'd broken up with my first, you know, that first love you have in the breakup, and I was in a punk rock band, and I, and I was at, I didn't know what I was going to do in life. I had heroin, it was coming to Seattle. And this record just sort of saved me from all of that, it protected me from the heartache and the heroin, and what am I going to do? I could just go to this record, just was a, like a suit of armor. again for listening and thanks to Rob Dean at Side to Side Studios and Paddy Cummings at Fingerprint Audio for ongoing tech and web help and Ben Cripps for giving me some fucking mooseless information. And as mentioned, if you do think I could do something better or I got something wrong in this free podcast that took me a few full days to put together, please email me at slappingthebass forward slash moose at bassolo.knobjockey.cripsy5stringbass.cock.goblin forward slash yes you have time for a poo cripsy at geocities.uk.sunkenships and I'll get back to you when I see you next Tuesday. But seriously if you do want to say hi hit me up on Instagram and Facebook a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast and check out the website a rock and roll rabbit hole.com for Spotify playlists of all the songs played in each episode all past episodes and bonus episodes and some other golden magic. 
I still have some sticker and guitar pick packs. So if anyone rates and reviews the podcast and then hits me up on Instagram, I'll post it to you anywhere in the world. Thank you. And a huge thank you to anyone who's already done that. It really does make a difference. Thanks, guys. To end the podcast, when I can, I want to add an example of the topic from a lesser-known act. And this week, we return home to Melbourne and some great nuggets called The Spin. Their singer, Tim Hocking, also featured in episode 11 with his old band, New Birds. Drummer Scotty makes some great drum kits called Gas Drums, so check them out online. And bass player Sean is host of the True Blue Crime podcast. Check that out if you dig stories of violence in Australia, or you could just join a pub band and experience it yourself. Check out the Victims tab on the website for some more songs from The Spin. Please rate, review and share the podcast and be nice to bass players this week. And I'll see you next week with a weird serial killer vibe double episode of Magic. And here's The Spin with their bass intro aptly titled Run Rabbit Run. See ya. Why don't you forget the moose for a moment?